If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Micah. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find chapter 1 of Micah on page 776. I want to confess I've gotten a bit of whiplash this week. Uh, Whiplash because of the change in genre. We've spent almost the last two years in the book of Acts and going from New Testament historical narrative to Old Testament prophetic literature is quite the jump. It's taken a little while to to get my head around it. still getting my head around it. And also, there's a bit of a challenge. Uh, I set for myself the schedule of working our way through these seven books over seven Sundays. And that's one chapter uh, per sermon. Um, And you know, if you've been around here any length of time, you know that I like to slow down. And so this has been quite a challenge. Um, Today might be a little longer than normal. And part of that is I feel like we can't just parachute into Micah. I have to give you some historical context of where we find ourselves and how we got here. And so I'd I'd like to begin uh, just with the Exodus. We don't have to go all the way back to the garden. Uh, We can begin with Exodus. God rescuing his people who were enslaved in Egypt. And God bringing them out and performing many mighty wonders parting the Red Sea, bringing them through, drowning Pharaoh's army, and then sustaining them in the wilderness. And what do we see in the wilderness? There's a cycle of sin. The people will fall into unbelief. They will grumble. They will wish to go back to Egypt. And then following that sin is judgment. Think of the example of the fiery Serpents in Numbers 21 that come and and bite the people so that many die. And then next in the cycle is the people crying out for mercy and repenting. And then fourth is the Lord relenting from disaster. So sin, discipline, crying for mercy, and then the Lord relenting. This is something that you see in the wilderness over and over and over again. And then they cross into the land of Canaan, the land of promise that had been prepared for them. And you really hope that finally they'll be able to rest. Finally, they'll be content to have God alone as the object of their worship. But it doesn't happen. And that same cycle of sin and judgment and crying out for mercy... And deliverance, it continues. Over time, God's people begin to resemble more and more their unbelieving neighbors who had not been expelled from the land. And they begin to look like their neighbors in that they have the same desires. They look at their neighbors and say, hey, they have a king. That's pretty cool. We want a king like they have. Lord, we aren't content to have you as our king. We want a man to rule over us. And so God gives them Saul. And then David. And then David's son Solomon. And during Solomon's day, this is the high point 
of Israel as a nation. It's the height of their power and influence and wealth. This is the pinnacle of this nation. But what happens? Sin and judgment. We're specifically told in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon loved many foreign women. And the problem wasn't that they were foreign women. The problem was that they loved and served other gods. These were women who did not know the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. And in his old age, Solomon's heart was turned away after these lesser false gods worshipped by his wives. We're told that Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And in his old age, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Solomon... The same man who built the temple, built places of worship for these gods. The gods of his foreign wives. How does the Lord respond to this? How does he respond to this uh, spiritual adultery? We're told in 1 Kings 11, God says, Solomon, since this has been your practice... And you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days. But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Because of my steadfast love for David your father, I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you. It's going to happen in the days of your son. So, after Solomon's death, y'all stay with me because this, this part is important. After Solomon's death, this one great nation will be split in two. There will be a north and a south. Now, you think of the United States and the split during the Civil War where you have one nation split between the north and the south. That's what happens to Solomon's kingdom. It will be split in two. The, the north will be called Israel. And its capital will be Samaria. We'll get back to Samaria. And the southern kingdom will be called Judah. And its capital is Jerusalem. And heartbreakingly, but unsurprisingly, the spiritual adultery seen under Solomon continues. In both the north and the south. There is spiritual sickness that's going to cause sickness everywhere else. Andrew Breitbart, the late conservative political commentator, is famous for saying that politics are downstream from culture. Meaning that if if you want to affect politics, you have to affect culture. If you want to change politics, you have to change culture. Well, what we see in the history of redemption, what we see in the history of God's people, is that really what you worship is upstream from everything. If, if, if you want to change culture, J. Gresham Machen will talk about this in Christianity and Liberalism. If you want to change culture, you need to make Christians. If you want to change culture, you share the gospel and you, you disciple men and women and boys and girls. Who we worship, what we believe about God, what we believe God requires of us, that is upstream from everything. 
Politics, culture, society, everything. And Israel's worship problem, as we will see as we go through the book of Micah, this worship problem is going to cause problems everywhere. In the book of Micah, God will indict those who covet and attempt to violently seize land and homes from their neighbors. God will indict rulers who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. God will indict those in the marketplace who profit off commercial trickery and deceit. God will point to strife within the home and say that your enemies share the same house with you. That's Micah's day. But God had been so clear. In Deuteronomy 28, he'd promised He said, if you faithfully obey my voice, if you are careful to do all my commandments, I will set you above all the nations of the earth. All my blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. I will cause your enemies to be defeated before you. I will command blessing in all that you undertake. I will do this. If you will keep my commandments and walk in my ways. But that's only the first half of Deuteronomy 28. There is a second half. And instead of blessings, it speaks of covenant curses. God also promises, he says, but if you will not obey my voice or be careful to do my commandments, then all these curses shall Come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. I will send on you curses and confusion and frustration in all that you undertake. Because you did not serve the Lord your God in joyfulness and gladness of heart. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom I will send against you. And then he ends. These are stunning words. Especially like I I preached... The, the sermon on Easter of the deliverance through the Red Sea. And then I read these words. It, it's hard to imagine how Deuteronomy 28 ends. The Lord says this. He says, the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. A journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as their male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. That, that's how this section on curses ends with the Lord saying, I will take you back to Egypt and you will sell yourselves to your enemies to be their slaves. Those were the covenant blessings and curses. That's what God had promised his people. And now, some 500 years later, with this covenant as the foundation of the prophetic message, Micah comes on the scene as an attorney of sorts. And he comes to file a lawsuit against this unbelieving, hard-hearted, rebellious people. And that's the setting of this book. It's important to know because Micah's about to come out with some hard language and you need to know why. We'll look at that in just a moment. I'm going to divide 
this book into three, well, this chapter into three portions. We'll look at the introduction of the book. We'll look at the coming judgment. And then lastly, we will look at how God's people should react to this coming judgment. But first, let's go to our God in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that we would remember the words that your servant Peter wrote. That, that no prophecy simply comes from the mind and interpretation of man. But men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they brought your word to us. Father, I pray that that same spirit would work during this time as we, as we open it and, and study it together. As we mark it and inwardly digest it. Would we be changed for the good of our souls and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. All the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Laafra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. And inhabitants of Zanan, do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts uh, to Moresheth, Gath. The houses of Axzeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, 
inhabitants of Maresha, the glory of Israel, shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Right There's a lot to get through. We'll jump straight into it. In verse 1, we're introduced to the prophet and his message. The first thing to note is that this message is not his own, but it's one that comes from the covenant God of Israel. Note that whenever you see the name LORD in all caps, what you're seeing is God's personal name. This is the same God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. It's the same God who brought them through the Red Sea. It's the same God who came down on Mount Sinai. That's who's speaking to his people. And and that means that what we just read isn't the rantings of a sensible, older, God-fearing man who's just fed up with the degeneracy of his society. No, it is the word of the Lord that came to this prophet, and he is simply the herald. He is simply the messenger. We're told this prophet's name. It's Micah. Micah is the shortened version of the name Micaiah. You'll remember a few weeks back I referenced 1 Kings 22, one of my favorite prophets. Uh, Micaiah, this is simply a shortened version, and it's a name that means who is like the Lord. Now, we aren't told his father's name, which is a bit unusual, but we are identified by his, well, he is identified by his hometown, Morasheth. This is a small town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And there's not a whole lot more we know about Micah personally. We know that he and his message will be remembered later in the days of Jeremiah. We'll see him referenced in Jeremiah 26, but that is really all we know about Micah. He continues on, though, this is quite helpful to tell us the dates of his ministry. Micah served as a prophet in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These are kings in the south, and their reigns will range from roughly 750 B.C. to 686. So there's a 64-year window when Micah does his thing. Uh, His ministry during this time also means that he is a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. I believe Isaiah would be older because he was called during the, well, at the very end of the reign of King Uzziah. Uh, But both were active at the same time. This is when Micah ministered. And the last thing to mention in verse 1 are these two capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. Where is Samaria? In the north. Jerusalem is in the south. Now, why not just say Israel and Judah? Why say the cities? Well, there are different reasons, but foremost, I think, is that this prophetic message, while it is very applicable to the rank and file, this word is especially directed at those in positions of power and influence in these capital cities. 
It is directed at the priests, the false prophets, the political leaders, the wealthy, the cadre of influential elites. That's the primary audience. And as we move on from this introduction, we see the coming judgment and indictment. You know, just before we read our text, I referred to Micah as an attorney of sorts. I think that might be a helpful way for you to view him. He's an attorney who has come to subpoena these rebellious people. He's the attorney representing the covenant God of Israel, and he makes them aware that a lawsuit is being filed against them due to their wickedness and idolatry. He says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. All of the earth is being called to witness. Watch what is about to happen. Because if this is how the Lord will prosecute a case against his own people, what do you think he'll do to you? Do you think you'll be exempt? Yes, he's in his holy temple. He's in his heavenly dwelling. But he is aware of you. He's not distracted by the glories of heaven. He sees all that you do. He is transcendent and imminent. He is far off and near. And he is coming down and bringing recompense with him. This follows in verses 3 and 4. It's stunning imagery. The Lord coming down to tread upon the high places of the earth. I mean, we think of places like Everest and K2, these different mountains that People will attempt to summit, and they will die just trying to climb up to the top. And yet the Lord comes down and treads upon these high places just as easily as you and I might walk on the seashore. And then we see in verse 4, do me a favor. As we look at verse 4, I want you to to read uh, line 1 and 3 together and line 2 and 4 together. What happens when the Lord comes down? The mountains will melt under him like wax before the fire. And the valleys will split open like waters poured down a steep place. One commentator noted that when the Lord enters the arena of man, man's environment is destabilized. Mountains melt. Valleys fall apart. Can we just... Stop for a moment and, and ask, what, what should this vision of the mag- magnificence of the king coming in judgment, what should it produce within us? Uh, awe? Wonder? Humility? I mean, th- this, is, this is the one that we so often leave. This is the one that we so often wander away from. In our folly, we think that we might find security and fulfillment and satisfaction elsewhere. But there is no one greater than this God. Why has he come? Verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. That's kind of broad. We are given details. That help explain. These are recorded in 2 Kings 17. I'll read a highlight of them for you. The people of Israel sinned against the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. 
They set up altars and shrines and places of false worship on every high hill and under every green tree. They served idols. The Lord warned them by every prophet, telling them to turn from their evil ways, but they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been. They despised his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after idols and became false. They followed the nations around them. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. Sounds familiar. They made an ashram. It's a female fertility goddess. They they served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That's what's meant behind the words, the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel, a pandemic of idolatry and wickedness. But Micah is about to burst a bubble. Because all the while, the people from the south, those good southerners from Judah, they're saying, yeah, go get them, Micah. Samaria is a a hellhole. Those people are awful. Go get them. They would hear this and feel very comfortable, very self-righteous, very secure. Until the Lord says in verse 5, and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? I'm talking about you too, Judah. You're guilty of the same wickedness, the same idolatry. There are pagan sites within your borders. There is false worship in your temple. The temple that Solomon built has become a pagan shrine. So watch what I'm going to do in Samaria in the north and be warned. He goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. Imagine Washington, D.C. Imagine if it was made to look like western Kansas. All the buildings, the monuments, the, the sidewalks, the traffic lights, everything just replaced with wide open country. God says that's what's going to happen to the capital of Samaria. You will not be able to recognize that a city stood here. And then we see the focus of this judgment in verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. Everything associated with their idolatry will be destroyed. Near the end of verse 7. We see these words, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. The first king in the north was named Jeroboam. He didn't want his people going south to worship in Jerusalem. He wanted to keep them here, worship in the north. And so he built his own place of worship. He constructed a new form of worship, and it was good for business. It began to flourish. The wealth came in, gifts came in. They were proud of their riches. Israel was like a prostitute that gets rich because so many admire her beauty. 
but we're told that all those gains will be lost. Calvin comments here and says, Since then the whole of such wealth is under the curse of God, it must necessarily soon pass away like smoke. That's what's going to happen. That's what's coming. And I've got to put the pedal to the metal here. Micah will go on to tell the people of Judah that this disaster is not confined to the north, but it's coming here. Imagine if I stood before you and said, thus says the Lord, judgment is coming to Tupelo and to Saltillo and Guntown and Baldwin and Boonville and Ryanzi and Biggersville and it will come to our gates. That's what happens in the latter half of this book. We'll see that the judgment is not confined to the north. You have all these cities that lay along the route that an army would travel and they will be utterly Devastated, And I don't have time to go through all these names. But something you need to know is that for each town, there is an ironic play on words. For example, Bethlehaphra means house of dust. And what does he say? Roll yourself in the dust. For Marath, bitterness. The town of bitterness is anxiously waiting for good. Because the judgment of God has come. There will be widespread devastation throughout your whole land. But there's two things I want to look at before we're finished. First is Micah's posture towards this news. And then second is, is there any ray of hope that I can leave you with today? So let's look at Micah's posture. How does Micah react to this message? Well, we see in verse 8. He says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. What is Micah's reaction to this? It's intense grief and mourning. He's not giddy or vengeful. He's not like Jonah, who wanted the recipients of the message to get what they deserved. No, Micah faithfully delivers the message to them, but it causes him great emotional pain. There's a story I heard about Andrew Bonar. He was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, and he was out on a walk with another Scottish minister by the name of Robert Murray McShane. They're talking and McShane asks Bonar, he says, Brother, what have you been preaching on? And Bonar replied, I've been preaching on hell. The coming judgment of God on the wicked. And then McShane asked a follow-up question. He says, Ah, yes. But did you preach it? With tears. Brothers and sisters, we have to be faithful to the message that judgment is coming. We can't deviate from the truth that 
all of those outside of the ark of Christ, for them there is only death and condemnation. We cannot deviate from the truth that at the end of the age there will be a sorting, the righteous from the unrighteous, those redeemed by the blood of Christ who will go to eternal life and those who have despised the Son and go to a place of everlasting torment. We have to be faithful to that truth. But do we preach it with tears? Are we heartbroken at the judgment that will come upon those who reject the word of God and continue in their hard-hearted rebellion? We have an image of the Lord doing this in Luke 19 as he weeps over Jerusalem. We preach the bad news with tears. But is there any good news? Are there any slivers of hope? Micah has some glorious promises that we will get to later this summer. But what about today? What about chapter 1? Well, there is a sliver of hope. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Thank you, Dr. David Strain at First Pres Jackson. He pointed this out in a sermon he preached. He pointed the eyes of his congregation to verse 15. Verse 15, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Maresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Now, Maresha was a strong place. It was a fortress. And the Lord, again, is undercutting any confidence they might have. All of you who live in this strong place, I will bring a conqueror to you. This is so hard news. But here's the good news. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Who or what's the glory of Israel? Well, Strain pointed to the target of this letter. The nobility, the elite, the important folks, those who are taking advantage of the needy. That cadre of privileged They saw themselves as the glory of Israel, and they shall come to Adullam. Do you remember Adullam? Adullam is a cave. We're going to get there eventually because we're starting 1 Samuel in, in the fall, but we're a couple years away. Maybe not that far. There's a cave. A safe place where David goes and hides from King Saul. And we read of this in 1 Samuel 22. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. David is hiding in a cave in this group of ragamuffins, these distressed individuals, this group of broke debtors, those people who are bitter in soul. They are gathered to David. And I have to believe Micah is telling his hearers, 
hey, you see yourselves as the glory of Israel. But in reality, you are no better off than the ragtag ne'er-do-wells who came to David. But here's the hope. What happened to that ragtag group? They would go on to be included in God's kingdom. God's chosen one, David, would come to the throne and this group of ragtag losers would be brought with him and God would build a new kingdom. Here's the hope for them. Here's the hope for us. That we might be humbled and not see ourselves as glorious, but see ourselves as those who need a rescuer and we would flee to that ancient stronghold and be preserved. Except it's not David that we are fleeing to meet. We are fleeing to meet great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ragamuffins, we poor in spirit, we debtors to mercy, we fly to him. We fly to the king who will reign forever and ever, knowing that God will build his kingdom. He will build something new, a kingdom that cannot fail. So there's our hope. Humble yourself. Fly to it. Mourn over your sin now instead of mourning over your sin after judgment has come. Run to that ancient fastness as a sinner, a debtor, a hiding place. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for hard words. But Father, we do praise you that you are a just God. You are a God who is holy and good. And Father, you you care very much. You care very much um, about your people. And you have made a way for us when justice and mercy kiss on the cross. Father, I do pray that that we would be warned uh, that uh, examples like this in Scripture warn us uh, of the danger of, uh, of not walking in your ways, of abandoning uh, the, your covenant, of despising your Son. Lord, keep us close to you all the days of our life. And Father, may we look to your son, great David's greater son, as our hope and our king and our all. We ask this in his name. Amen.